what we can do to address the climate crisis. It is very much about what's in our own homes, that if we act individually and collectively, creates sort of this abundance that we all get to share in. Most of these electric vehicles just happen to be batteries on wheels, and we're not taking advantage of them. Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Christian Roseland. I'm a writer and policy analyst in the energy industry, and I'm one of your hosts. Today, we're going to talk about how homes and vehicles are evolving into dynamic electrical machines that can both save, and in some cases, even make you money, and allow you to be an active player in the future of the electricity grid. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Lisa Ann Pinkerton. Hi, everybody. Lisa Ann here, CEO of Technica Communications, Chairwoman of Women in Clean Tech and Sustainability. And Christian, I appreciate that you proposed this topic for the show because I find it so interesting that there's this idea of homes of the very near future becoming so power independent that it opens up these new markets for people to be more active players in the energy that they use and potentially buying and selling it amongst each other, this peer-to-peer experience without the need of a utility in the middle. Yeah, if you throw in something like solar and batteries, sure. It becomes suddenly like, welcome to my power plant. I mean, apartment. (laughs) (laughs) And this concept of the all-electric smart home, it's like the first versions of the iPhone. Before you had one, it was really hard to see the depth of its abilities to transform one's relationship with their phone. And, you know, beyond Steve Jobs, I mean, it was really hard for any of us to conceptualize this concept of, of an app store and what that would mean. And then, and then you get an iPhone, you have the app store, and there's this like whole new industry that is just born out of this technology. Yeah. And the, because the iPhone becomes the platform, it's the enabler. Mm-hmm. You know, we're used to phones as phones. Now they're a platform for all these other things. And I think when we talk about homes on the foundational level, the electric system in your home and the electric appliances, that is the platform there. But, you know, that really starts with moving away from fossil fuels for heating homes and cooking food to moving to these electrical appliances. And today we're really going to talk more about heat pumps and induction stoves as the latest, greatest wave of electric appliances. To get started, then we're going to talk about things that go beyond an electrical panel for your home to make it more dynamic, and then also EV charging capabilities. So we're kind of going to run the gamut here. And when it comes to like heat pumps and induction, like this tech has been around for a while. Oh yeah, induction was patented 100 years ago. That's crazy. And heat pumps, we've had those... Those are basically an air conditioning unit running backwards. And we've had that, what, since the 1950s in mass adoption? So, you know, the funny thing is, though, even 10 years ago, this technology just wasn't that great. Induction, who, who talked about induction 10 years ago? It was expensive and rare. And heat pumps, they did not work as well when it got cold. So just in this last decade, this tech has really moved in leaps and bounds in terms of commercial availability, price, and performance. And so the tech is becoming better, more affordable, and that's leading to this uptick in adoption. In 2021, heat pump sales alone were up 13%, and that's before legislation like the Inflation Reduction Act or European policymakers broadly started pushing for greater adoption. And Nordic countries like Norway, Finland, Sweden, to lesser extent Estonia, heat pumps are already very popular. Oh yeah, so I guess that means they work pretty well in cold weather. Then, Mm -hmm. maybe. (laughs) 
maybe. Well, the latest technology, right? I yeah. have experience with a heat pump in an RV, and uh, it doesn't work below 50 degrees. I'm like, why do we even have this? The old tech was not, no. it was not there, no. So it's shaking off. It has to shake off this perception. Yeah. But then also countries like France, Italy, Germany, Japan, China, heat pump sales are up. Oh, yeah. And when we think about Germany and Japan, we think of, I mean, those are places where gas is really expensive. So it's not a surprise that people want to move to a high-efficiency electrical appliance. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And then the induction, that's growing as well. Um, even like in the U.S., though, 15% of built-in cooktops and stoves are currently induction, so it's small. And the growth is expected to be less than a heat pump. But still, I think people are starting to catch on. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, part of it is just the tech is cool. Induction is cooking with magnets that induce an electrical current in the pot that you're using. That's why when you touch them, they're not hot, right? And then because of internal resistance in that pot, the metal heats up. So some people call it cooking with lightning. <laughs> Bam! <laughs> Pow! <laughs> Whatever he says. <laughs> I don't watch enough cooking shows. Um, you know, it's like you boil the water in half the time, so it's this superior technology, and it's ultimately less expensive compared to natural gas. Yeah, and I think that the very high cost of fossil fuels in the winter of 2022-2023, which is happening as we record this, is a big driver for electrification. For sure, and or air pollution. Yeah. You don't have that. Greenhouse gases. I mean, ultimately, this is there's pretty much one way to, one credible path to decarbonize buildings, and that's through electrifying mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to bet in the 2030s, kids won't even know what the phrase, now we're cooking with gas, means... Because no one will use gas stoves anymore. They just, they just won't be around. But how do we actually start this transition to a home that runs solely on electricity, right? So to help us answer this question, we spoke to someone whose current mission is to help people plan for their electric future, one replacement at a time. Ari Matusiak, co-founder and CEO of Rewiring America. Rewiring America was founded in the summer of 2020 with a pretty simple goal to electrify everything in the economy that can be electrified. And once you start to unpack the flow of energy from generation to consumption, it pretty logically starts to come to the place where you realize that it's all flowing through machines that we use in our day-to-day lives. So the only way to address the climate crisis then is to not use fossil fuels anymore, which means for the machines that we rely on in our day-to-day lives, think about the cars that you drive, how you heat the air and water in your homes or anywhere that you spend time cook your food and dry your clothes, it means for those things that they need to be electric things. Um, And the good news is that if we electrify all the machines that we can in the economy, we can pretty much tackle most of the climate crisis and do so with technology that already exists. Yeah, and ones that are less expensive, ultimately, like not buying a a car, right, or adding solar to your home, which can be more costly, whereas uh, electrifying your home really puts money back in your pocket really quickly, right? Yeah, our, our analysis is that if you electrify everything in your household, and we do encompass the you know cars and, we, and, and solar where that's possible, but also making sure that everything in your house that has a pipe is converted to having a plug, uh, that the average American household would save $1,800 a year on their energy bills. And that's an incredibly important because it's every year 
But also we live in a country where 49% of Americans don't have $400 in emergency savings. So if you just think about the amount of money that is uh, available to Americans if they electrify, it ends up being actually the largest wealth transfer in the history of the United States from energy producers to energy consumers if we make this change wholesale. Wow. By the way, I worked at Rocky Mountain Institute when we did analyses of the cost of electrification. And one of the things that we found is obviously, you know, there's all this money that you make back when you're no longer, when you're paying less for electricity than you would for gas. But there's also the cost of the the upfront cost of switching over to electric. Can you talk a little bit about how these two compare to each other and how long it takes to pay off the investment of switching over? Well, it it depends, obviously, on the on the household, which is sort of the not helpful answer. The upshot of the Inflation Reduction Act is that every American household now has an electric bank account that they probably don't know that they have to help write down the front end cost of precisely these uh, efficient electric machines. We created a calculator at rewiringamerica.org. You can go and find out uh, what is available to you in the Inflation Reduction Act based on where you live and your household circumstances. As more and more people purchase these machines, the cost of those machines is going to come down. And so it turns out burning fossil fuels in your house is not a great thing to do. And people who do do that in their homes, cooking with gas, et cetera, have a 40 plus percent higher instance rate of asthma. So there are all these sort of knock-on and critical benefits that come from electrification, but the bill savings are um, a a critical component of that. Well, well, Christian loves his second and third order effects conversations. (laughs) Uh, I really want to dig into some of those. But before we get there, could we get back up to the Inflation Reduction Act? And could you give us a few specifics around some of these incentives? Like what could a a typical home um, leverage? Sure. So an example of this would be for households up to 150% of the area median income, which is basically low and moderate income households, there are rebates that are, go- that are up to $14,000 for the household point of sale rebates for everything from heat pump water heaters and space heaters, heat pump dryers, induction cooktops, breaker boxes to upgrade your electrical panels, wiring, weatherization, all of that is included in that rebate program. There are tax credits for some of those same systems for heat pumps, for breaker boxes. And then there are all of these programs that are going to start making themselves felt in people's day-to-day lives as they buy these machines, meaning to say the government is going to be sponsoring the financing to bring down the cost of financing programs for these purchases as people look to take on the cost over a period of years as opposed to paying for it up front. But what's really interesting, take, for instance, the tax credits for the heat pumps. It's a $2,000 tax credit for a heat pump, and it is you can use $2,000 in tax credits a year, but it sort of re-ups every single calendar year. So let's say in October of one year, you decide to get a heat pump water heater because your water heater knocked out. And then in February of the following year, you decide that you want to replace your furnace with a heat pump. Well, you can get the 2,000 in the one year and then the 2,000 in the subsequent year. 
And that's the kind of sort of benefit that's inside of our electric bank accounts, which makes them sort of persistent and available to us Mm -hmm. as we go forward. So to shift over a little bit, you know, I've I've heard a lot of people express concerns about electric system reliability and what happens when the power goes out, particularly as we shift in cold climates to electric heating. Certainly, I think that Texas was a, a bit of a Texas stoked people's fears about this particular issue. From your perspective, are all electric systems more reliable or less reliable than heating with gas and why? I should say reliable and resilient. Keep in mind that the gas networks also go out during storms. Um, See what happened in New Orleans last year as well. And so the way to create increased reliability is to have machines that can be backed up locally. And the only kind of machine that can be backed up locally is a machine that runs on electricity, not one that runs on gas. And the other thing to say about that is that these machines um, are so much more efficient um, that they take less power to run. And that is also an important part of having uh, a more resilient and reliable energy system overall. Mm -hmm. So let's move to the scale of the problem. If we just talk about the residential side, there are 140 million homes in the United States. And only 26% of those currently use electricity as their sole source of energy. So how do we electrify these other 100 million plus homes, as well as all the commercial properties, as quickly as possible? Yeah, I, I mean, ultimately what we need to have is a point of view where it's sort of next machine up. Like if... um we all shed a little tear every single time a fossil fuel water heater was installed. That would be um, that would that would <laughs> that would help. <laughs> it's like the the opposite of the angel getting its wings. What's the opposite yes. of that? <laughs> exactly. So, but but this is like a very you can't. It's very hard to sort of chase. It would be very inefficient if we all had to sort of run down the block and chase the 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 contractor van and meet the contractor and the and the homeowner at the door and say, no, 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 no. You have to get a heat pump. Don't get this machine. Now, that's not going to work. So it needs to be the default in the market is the efficient electric machine. That's what people are being sold. That's what people understand and are and are seeking out. And so the first step was to create these incentives through the Inflation Reduction Act, which helped to create an incentive for the purchase of these machines by making it um, easier for folks to access them and then to get the benefits from them. So that's a really big deal and it's a really important step, but we need to make it a real thing because the trick about the Inflation Reduction Act is that it really is a policy of potential as opposed to a defined outcome. So there's that. But then the last thing is that we have to actually create the conditions in our homes to receive these electric machines. So imagine as a, for instance, if your water heater goes out and you call a contractor and you say, I know that the heat pump is the superior option and that's what I want. And they say, you know what? You're right. It is the superior option. And they come out to your house and they look and they, and then they say, here's the thing. We're going to have to do an electrical upgrade, run some wiring, and then we can put the heat pump in. That's going to take about three weeks. Well, you're not going to wait three weeks to take a hot shower. That's not reasonable. You're going to say, no, no, I'll take whatever is in the back of the truck today. 
So a lot of this is also about setting up homes to receive these machines. So the way I like to think about it is every single time there's an electrification event, we should make sure that a household is setting up the next electric events. You get an EV, you get a level two charger. Let's put outlets where the furnace and the water heater are. Uh, because now when that water heater goes out and that's in that sort of example, you're not having to deal with all of that because it's already been done. So all of this to say is that that's all part of changing the market default to making these machines the most affordable and convenient to install. And that's the work that we collectively need to do. Excellent. So I, I want to go back to something you said there about the cold weather performance of heat pumps. I mean, today, contractors in Rhode Island will tell you, don't get a heat pump, it doesn't work, you know, if it gets too cold. Myself, I experienced about 10 years ago living in Somerville, Massachusetts, uh, having a heat pump that didn't do much below 20 degrees Fahrenheit. But obviously, that's not the heat pumps of today. So can you talk about what's happened in heat pump technology over the last 10 years and, and why they are not the heat pumps of 2010 or 2012? Sure. They, the technology has changed a lot, and they work down to 20 degrees below uh, zero Fahrenheit uh, and efficiently do so. The technology is, um, is available and can cover any climate in the United States. And again, the contractor uh, world and the consumer world both need to evolve their understanding about these technologies in order for them to become the, the default that is sold and replaced. But it's happening to, to your north in Maine. They have probably one of the most robust heat pump programs um, in the country where they are expressly going after uh, taking out delivered fuels and fuel oil homes and putting heat pumps in their place. And they have a whole challenge to get 100,000 heat pumps in by 2025. Um, and they are making great progress. And guess what? People are getting those heat pumps. They are staying toasty and comfortable in the wintertime. And then they tell their friends and they tell their neighbors and they say, you know, this heat pump thing is pretty incredible. I, you know, it's really toasty and comfortable. I'm saving a bunch of money. It works all the time. By the way, it's an air conditioner. This is awesome. And then it starts that cycle, right? So the contractor wants to sell something that they know will work and give, have a good experience and that they know how to, that they know how to install, by the way. And the homeowner wants like a thing that's going to be great and be reliable and uh, be affordable. And the technology, by the way, is it works in both of those contexts, but that conversation needs to be enabled. So that gives me a lot of hope, by the way, because we're not dealing with like a like a culture war about our furnaces. Like it's just got to work. We're not dealing with a culture war about our furnaces yet. <laughs> no, but but even but even in the world, like even in the places where we where we imagine there to be a culture war, there will not be a culture war because the machines are in the end superior and customers people like things that work are great and serve their needs and they and do. save save the money at the pump and save the money at the pump. And so I'm very confident that the, as much as people will try to turn this into, um, uh, into like a us versus them kind of thing, 
there's a lot going for the EV and the electric machines across the board that are just going to be apparent as more and more people use them. So, so let's get to that. When a homeowner wants to go electric, all electric, how should they go about it? What are the first steps? Well, the first step is to go to rewiringamerica.org and check out our calculator and look <laughs> at our guides to how to, how to actually go electric. We have guides for homeowners and renters both and to help them think about what they can do in their homes, as well as the some tools like the calculator to help them think about what's available to them in terms of incentives and, and the like. So that's the first thing. But the the distillation of what's in all that material is really about people coming up with their own electric plan, which is tied to the plans that they have for their homes and their households. So if your furnace is old and you know that you're going to replace it, you can start making the making plans to do so, you know, making sure that you have a breaker box that is that has is has sufficient capacity that you have that outlet that you need where the furnace is. That's a pretty concrete example. If you're going to be getting an EV and you are in a in a home that enables you to charge that EV into your house, and you're going to go down that path, then that's also a great opportunity to enable the rest of your home to be electrified. And so I, I think it's not about some kind of um, sea change to our decision-making process that we already have. It's just about putting in the forefront of our minds that there are these efficient electric machines that are the better option and putting ourselves in the position to take advantage of them. By the way, using incentives that are available to us now um, that weren't before. So just ensuring that you have that stuff set up so that when the time comes, you're not saying, well, I can't do that because I'm not going to be without heat or a hot shower or a cooktop or whatever the case might be. Yeah, and I can I can see how, like for the homeowner, the benefit is really clear to see, you know, I can save more money and, and have greater options for other things that I want to install later. I, I would just say that when we talk about climate, uh, sometimes as a perspective that there's really not a lot that I individually can do or that my community can do. But electrification is by far the most powerful tool that each of us have and that we collectively have to address to address climate in a way that ultimately helps us in our day-to-day -day lives, helps us save money, helps us live healthier, help more in a more healthy and sort of sustainable way. And that's very powerful. And I think there's a community level conversation about what we can do to address the climate crisis. And there's a pathway for that that is very much about what's in our own homes, that if we act individually and collectively creates sort of this abundance that we all get to share in. An electric bank account. That is something I have not heard before. Yeah. And, you know, it can be a big bank account, especially in the United States, where with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, there's a ton of incentives, as Ari mentioned. P people don't realize how big these are, particularly for low and moderate income people. If you make less than 80% of the area median income, these incentives cover 100% of the costs of upgrades, 
within limits. Wow. You know, there's some limits on what you can spend on each individual one. And if you make up to 150% of AMI, you can get 50% of your costs covered. Wow, that's that's huge. I mean, for, yeah. for people 80% AMI, that's like free new appliances. Yeah, essentially. And, you know, still regardless... For most people, you still need to make a plan. Mm-hmm. I like what Ari said about baby steps because he's right. When a, a big appliance in your house uh, stops working, uh, you don't have the luxury to wait around several weeks to get the most ideal replacement. You need something now and you need it to work. Yeah. And you know, while the IRA is an, it's a United States law, this concept of baby steps, that's really applicable pretty much wherever you are. You know, mm-hmm. I'm actually... Living this right now, my partner and I are preparing to electrify her house. And one of the big questions that keeps coming up is, are we going to need to get a new electrical panel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you're using more electricity generally. You know, besides the loads, all these things, the heat pumps and the induction. And, you know, if you want solar or energy storage or an EV mm-hmm. charger, suddenly you're really increasing the loads the house needs to manage. Yeah. And, you know, the funny thing is, this isn't just your home, also the grid. Where I live in Rhode Island, Mm -hmm. a study was done that found that full electrification of heating and transportation would roughly double the amount of electricity that we use each year in the state. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and if you choose a smart electrical panel instead of a standard one for the upgrade, this just opens up a range of potential additional uses. Mm -hmm. So that's why we talked to someone whose business it is to make devices to allow intelligent management of electricity in your home. And as it turns out, this has implications well beyond the walls of your house. My name is Alex Bajanov. My new title is President and COO of Lumen. So at Lumen in general, we're focused on residential energy management and residential load management, which are close enough, but somewhat different. And we've had a product on the market for almost four years now called Lumen Smart Panel, which is a somewhat larger system that manages individual circuits in a house to you know, control energy consumption and uh, measure and turn things on and off. And through uh, all these years, we've learned a lot of things about market trends and installing products in homes, complexities associated with that. And we came up with a new generation of our hardware platform that is is modular. And that means that we have a system that can uh, monitor and control individual circuits. And a homeowner can start with installing a system that can control maybe one or two loads in their home and expand later to control as many circuits as they want. And And why would a homeowner want to... Uh, integrate something like this modular smart energy system? So uh, I will probably start by talking about our um, kind of market where we uh, were historically have a lot of uh, strong presence, which is homes with solar and energy storage systems. Because uh, when you install solar panels in most places in the U.S., you save money uh, on your costs. So for those people, installing an energy management system like Lumen will mean that they can save thousands of dollars on optimizing the size of their battery, on getting more value from their battery, essentially running longer or having whole house backup. 
as opposed to partial or critical loads back up and installing chargers because everybody wants to charge in their home. And also people want to charge fast. So when you add something as large as a level two EV charging system in your house, most likely you are maxing out the size of your panel, but that's only a part of the problem. The other part is you're probably maxing out the utility line that feeds your house. In most jurisdictions in the US, you will need to cover the costs that the utility will incur to upsize your service. And now we're looking at tens of thousands of dollars. And with load management system like Lumen, you can avoid all of these costs because Lumen dynamically manages your loads while let's say you're charging your EV, Lumen will go and seek another load in your house based on your preferences, let's say it's a dryer and make sure that your dryer does not turn on when you're charging your EV. But then, of course, there is demand response, or broadly speaking, what we call transactive energy, or essentially consumers, such as homeowners and businesses, of course, reacting to certain signals from the grid, having that ability to react to certain things that are happening at the grid and essentially monetize your house, monetize your loads in the house by shutting them down in critical uh, times. I think we've thought about these sorts of things, these smart home features as a nice to have, you know, as something that is an advantage, something that can help you lower your power bills or shift power around. But what you're actually saying here is that in some situations like, you know, EV charging for level two in particular, this is not a nice to have, this is a must have. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. And we are about to see a wave of, uh, actions from you know the grid from utility companies because adding those EVs puts so much stress on the grid that it will not be able to cope with that. And we're not even talking about hundred percent of EV cars sold in the U.S. will be electrical. We're talking about low double-digit percentage points, and that that will uh, really push us beyond what's possible today. I mean, with the current grid, unless we start implementing grid edge technologies. We start really tying things together, you know, behind the meter, front of the meter in one platform. You know, we've, we've used a couple terms here that our listeners may or may not know. Can you define about what you mean by transactive energy? You know, how does this work to sell power to your neighbors or buy it from their neighbors instead of the power company? So uh, transactive energy has even broader um, uh, meaning than, than that. Transactive energy in general is... Um, the ability for the end user, whether it's a homeowner, whether it's a business or an office or you know, whatever that is, to react based, uh, to essentially flex their consumption, flex their demand based on certain price signals or other signals mm -hmm. that may be coming from the grid or other parties, other counterparties. And peer-to-peer -peer trading is just one of the flavors of transactive energy. But peer-to-peer -peer trading is when you have, you know, let's say one house producing electricity with solar panels, for example, or maybe they have a battery that is fully charged and now they're willing to discharge it. And then you have another house that is willing to consume that electricity. And today, this model is possible in almost 20, I think 22 or 24 states in the U.S., pretty much uh, deregulated states. And I think it is rapidly coming up. It 
I must say, it is very difficult to implement. Uh, there are some early studies and early pilots over in Europe that are very inspiring, and uh, we're uh, absolutely tracking those. And there are some developments in the U.S. I saw Sonova filing for a micro-utility license in California where they expect to uh, develop certain communities that will be equipped with solar and batteries and enable those uh, homes inside that community to transact with each other. So we're talking about this isolated microgrid that consists of, well, I don't know, a few dozen homes that deal with each other. They're still connected to the larger grid. So that community still has a power line from the utility that comes in. But the beauty of that is maybe that power line doesn't need to be that large because most of the needs will be offset by the internal peer-to-peer trading, and then a little bit will be coming on top of that from the utility. And I do think that the industry will is heading that way in, in 10 years. But I wanted to add that there's another aspect to this, which is resiliency. Let's say this, this is in California. Let's say there's another fire season and the grid is down. Well, guess what? This community could island itself and still be largely fully powered. Maybe they won't be running everything. Maybe they won't be doing their, you know, they won't be running their dryers. But in, in many ways, their ACs will be on, you know, their, their critical loads will be on, and, and maybe they can even charge their EVs and drive away because, you know, there's a fire coming or something like that. And, and that's where load flexibility comes in. Because if you picture that island and, and folks trading there, you want to prioritize certain loads and deprioritize other loads. And that's uh, absolutely important. What do you say to people who are concerned about the ability of adding more intelligence to devices in your home and that the danger that this could be compromised, whether this is by sort of larger societal structures getting more information about you than, than you would like or the potential for your information to be leaked and used by nefarious actors. Anybody who has a cell phone and uses a credit card, I'm not sure privacy exists for you (laughs) (laughs) if you're that person. Um, Because a lot of people just don't understand what happens with that data. Like just those two sources, how much that gives away from about you to all sorts of uh, parties that, you know, are purchasing and using this data. But at the same time, I must say, this is a very important aspect, privacy and security, not just data, but also control. And for us, it's especially important because our products control energy inside your house. Our products do turn things on and off. And so that adds an extra layer where we need to be very cautious about how we do things. And of course, there are a lot of technical uh, things that we do anywhere from encryption, to uh, authorization of users, to how the data is stored, to which services we use as uh, partners that help us to store the data and what happens to it. I must say, uh, just on the Lumen side, uh, given that we are working with utility companies, there is, (laughs) I don't want to even say an extra layer of scrutiny, it's probably extra 10 layers of scrutiny that's uh, put on us because natural utilities are uh, uh, very, very uh, mindful about security because they're running critical infrastructure. I remember growing up, 
growing up in the 90s, it was all about the smart home and, and these fantastic entertainment systems and having your lights powered, you know, remotely, blah, blah, blah. And then Internet of Things came about and we had the the smart thermostat and all these devices that kept promising, oh, the smart home is here, the smart home is here. But then it never really took off, right? And I'm wondering if this concept of how electricity can be generated, stored, and used within a home and optimized becomes, finally allows for this concept of the smart home to become ubiquitous and actually take off. What do you, what do you think about that? I'll probably give you just this example. You Let's say you have solar panels. Congratulations. Let's say you have an EV, whatever the brand is. Uh, and let's say you have a smart thermostat and a battery. So you at this point, you have a pretty solid smart home. But guess what? Today, most likely, all of these appliances or all of these things don't know about each other. Maybe with the exception of the uh, battery and solar. These typically pair together. Your battery has no idea that you have a smart thermostat. Your smart thermostat has no clue that you have an EV charging right now. And the real value is when all of these things start coming together, talking to each other and acting in a concerted way. In that example, let's say your thermostat bumps up the temperature by two degrees when your EV is charging because your solar is only producing that much power and you want to stay largely on your solar power or your self-generation. So that generation is now flowing to EV and your AC is not consuming that much. That's just an example of a value add that smart home could provide. Thank you, Alex. This has all been really fascinating. It makes me really excited for the future of homes. Uh, is there, uh, I think we covered all of the questions that we wanted to ask you. Is there anything you uh, wanted to uh, touch on or a question you thought we'd ask that we didn't? Well, I think um, there, there's one aspect that, and I think it, it, it will be very natural uh, given that uh, your uh, your listeners are really focused on, you know, electrifying homes and uh, kind of thinking how, how the future may look like in that domain. There's uh, one very important aspect that most of us, if not all of us, have to start thinking about and at some point get used to, to, to the fact that our homes will be more and more so connected to the broader grid, not just in the sense that I have a wire that feeds my house. Well, that kind of <laughs> has been there for you know the past hundred years, but in the sense that my house and things in my house, whether it's my battery, whether it's my car, whether it's my smart thermostat, whether whether it's my you know energy management system or you know something else, will act in unison with the grid. And because the grid of the future is the grid that doesn't stop at the meter level, the grid of the future is all-encompassing grid that takes everybody in every, essentially really the grid edge, like the place where energy meets consumer, that will belong to the grid. And, and we all need to get used to that fact. You know, Christian, we hear a lot about how society needs to modernize the grid and then also people arguing about how to do that. But in talking with Alex, it occurs to me that this modernization, it's not just at the grid level, it's also in our homes. Yeah, and it turns out there's a lot of benefits 
to homeowners to do this. Not just that you can participate in utility programs to save money. You can actually have this like greater participation in the operation of the grid. And ultimately, this is kind of a stepping stone to microgrids, which, you know, the potential to create your own grid in your home or your neighborhood. That's, to me, that's like the holy grail of, of everything, solar and storage and, you know, this energy transition, everything that it, it offers, this idea where the power goes out in your neighborhood, but because some homes have something like the Lumen technology and they have solar and storage, they're able to transfer some of that power directly to their neighbors and be compensated for it. I mean, this idea of transactive energy, it's going to be huge. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, notably, Germany is way ahead of us on this with the the Zonin community, where the company Zonin is already setting up. They've been able to do transactive energy across communities. And, you know, this whole home as a power plant concept, this is what people get excited about. Because instead of being a passive consumer, from the Germans, there's another word, the prosumer. You know, you're a player in the energy system. And, you know, of course, this also requires utilities and ISOs, you know, the the organizations that regulate the utility grid, it requires them to allow this to happen, right? In California, it's currently illegal for you to sell energy to your neighbor. You have to go through an intermediary. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm detecting the return of our theme of policy not keeping track with technology from the (laughs) urban mobility episode (laughs) and maybe all of our other episodes. Well, and this concept of the middleman being outdated. Oh, gosh, I'm looking at you, automotive dealerships. Your days are numbered. But that's that's a topic for another show. But, no, let's, let's talk about vehicles here for a second. Because these ideas of smart management and transactive energy, these don't stop with the appliances inside your home. No, they don't. We have this other thing that's suddenly plugging into your home. And when you integrate these electric vehicles with smart homes, you're bringing in a battery, which can do all kinds of things if you use it. That's right. And... You know, you're getting onto this concept that I always feel like is forever 15 years in the future, which is the idea of vehicle-to-grid technology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it may be finally arriving because even in the United States, people are getting paid today to have their vehicle work as a battery for the electrical grid. So not only could your all-electric home of the future generate revenue uh, from selling its energy directly to other homes, but the EV owners could also um, generate income through the use of their battery. Uh, So to get a handle on this very near future, we spoke to a woman who's dedicated to enabling a vehicle to everything concept for the future. Claire Broido Johnson, I'm the Chief Operating Officer of Fermata Energy. Fermata Energy is an electric vehicle charging company with the concept that what if your electric vehicle could earn money while parked? With Fermata Energy's Vita X platform, your electric vehicle can make money for you by helping power the grid. So in addition to getting you from place to place, your electric vehicle can lower your electric bill, earn revenue, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and cut costs for fuel maintenance and repair of your car. Thanks, Claire. I think this is really cool because I don't when people think of EV charging, they're really, they're first and foremost, they're like, oh my God, where am I going to charge it? And how am I going to, you know, am I going to have enough range, blah, blah, blah. And uh, they're not even conceptualizing that there's this opportunity out there for them to earn money with these chargers. And you mentioned vehicle to everything. 
Um, and so I want to ask you, so you call it V to X. Like I think a lot of people are familiar with V to G, which is uh, vehicle to grid or V to B buildings. Can you explain how these operations work and how, what the difference is between them? V to B is where the vehicle is used as a resource for a building, right? V to G is often used to describe use cases where electric vehicles and chargers are operated like a power plant by a utility or a system operator um, to provide various grid services like generation capacity or energy or frequency regulation. What we're focused on is V2X, V to everything. So the idea that your electric vehicle is 95% of the time parked, let's find the best use case for it. Let's be able to plug into the grid as opposed to get money from the grid so that you are not only ever paying to charge your vehicle, you can discharge your vehicle into the grid at peak hours. So, I mean, I honestly, V to G, V to B, V to H, V to X, it's not clear how it's all going to shake out. And we're using the nomenclature of V to X because we really can provide vehicle to everything right now. You know, I think one of the big fundamental questions that I come back to is the main function of EV batteries is to is to drive. And most people, they're thinking, okay, I want to make sure that my battery is fully charged so that I have it when I need it to drive. What is the opportunity cost here in terms of, so, I mean, obviously you can make some money doing vehicle to grid, but but how does that compare to the opportunity cost of discharging from your battery? And it's really interesting because the use cases are, of course, are all different. So a school bus is a fantastic use case in that most school buses in the summer are parked at school or parked wherever they're parked and they're not used at all. And most of the biggest demand charge, demand response events happen to be summer days, July, August, like somewhere between 3 and 7 p.m. So that bus is just sitting idle for over 95% of the time, particularly in the summer. So there's no opportunity cost. It really depends on the use case, right? So if you're looking at a UPS fleet, or a fleet for Walmart, or a fleet for Amazon, there are potentially opportunity costs. But when you stop and think about how many hours a year are the peak hour events, depends on the utility, but it's maybe 100 hours out of the 87, 60 hours of the year. And essentially what we do at Fermata Energy, we happen to have a hardware, but we are providing software as well. And that really is our core business, is our software and our data science, is that we understand how you want to use your vehicle. We understand your duty cycles, and we give you 24 hours of notice. There's a demand response event that's coming up at your utility. We suggest you plug your, your vehicle into the grid from 1 to 1.30 p.m. tomorrow. Or we've been collecting data and interval, 15-minute interval data from your building, we believe based on what we've seen in your building that your demand charge management fees are going to be highest from 2 to 3.30 p.m. 24 hours from now, right? So we suggest you charge to the grid. So sure, there's an opportunity cost of not driving that car for that hour and a half, but we give you 24-hour notice and you can always say, nope, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to use my vehicle. But the way to think about it is really different. And part of the reason I joined Fermata Energy recently is I really feel like mobility is a part of the climate change solution long term. And it's something that people really haven't thought about. But if you stop and think, most of these electric vehicles just happen to be batteries on wheels and we're not taking advantage of them. Mm -hmm. Okay. So basically, Nissan said, if you do use your vehicle to charge the grid or charge a building, it's not going to, you know, it won't affect your warranty. First off, I should say, Nissan is the first 
company with its Nissan Leaf to have bi-directional capability. And then our company is the first company to get a UL 9741 and IEEE certification to be able to charge to the grid. So a utility can have confidence that we're just not connecting something we bought off Amazon and charging it to the grid. So do you expect other vehicle makers to start approving bidirectional charging under their warranties as well? How close is that to moving beyond the leaf? There's a number of OEMs who are working on it, including Ford, Hyundai, GM. So we are you know, cautiously optimistic that there will be more people in the market very soon. One thing that was super exciting for our field is the F-150, the Lightning came out, but it's a completely different use case that often gets jumbled with this bi-directional thing, right? So the F-150 is basically, it's storage on wheels, again, but the F-150 allows you to go off-grid. The F-150 will not allow you to charge the grid. It will allow you to charge your home if you are off-grid, which is a wonderful Mm. use case. Right. It's a wonderful use case. Like if you're in the middle of nowhere or if you're reconstrained or you're in parts of California that are having lots of blackouts, what a cool idea. Buy your F-150, be able to discharge the electricity from your F-150 into your home. But there is not a capability of selling back to the grid at this point. Hmm. Yeah, still, as you mentioned, still a really exciting opportunity. Awesome use case, right? Super awesome use case, just a different use case than vehicle to grid or vehicle to everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about the scale here. If we were to utilize all of the EV batteries, say, in California and, and connect them to the grid, how far could this get us towards balancing variability in wind and solar output? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm not sure of all of the numbers, but I know that there are at least four gigawatt hours of dispatchable capacity by Nissan Leafs alone in the United States. So that is a huge power plant, right? An enormous power plant and could likely help us with balancing variability in wind and solar, reducing the blackouts and the brownouts that are happening in California. And I know that there are particular use cases with um, Tesla's wall box, where the wall box is charging the grid. But the wall box is an interesting and, again, different use case, right? Tesla has no interest in vehicle-to-grid, vehicle-to-everything, um, because that will cannibalize their sale of power walls. Right, their power wall uh. is very clearly a sta- <laughs> their power wall is very clearly a stationary battery, right? And they want to sell as many power walls as possible. So they're not going to make their Tesla vehicle to grid or vehicle to everything because that will cannibalize power wall sales. What a huge lost opportunity, though. To go back a second, you said four gigawatts of capacity by Nissan Leafs. Four gigawatt States. hours. Uh huh. Four gigawatt hours. Okay, that okay. makes more sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm trying to compare this to something. I, I think. For me, a gigawatt might be easier to do this with, but say that's the output over an hour of four standard-sized nuclear reactors. Exactly right. When you see those numbers and you realize, wow, like not, you know, storage is such an important part of making wind and solar a reality or continuing to expand its reality, right? And not only is storage something that's in mobility, but it's storage on wheels, So move it to the substation where it's most needed, right? Of course, you've got mobility issues and you've got, you know, revenue issues. But I mean, it's it's a really powerful tool and we're really in its renaissance, you know, very, very early stage. 
you know, we hear a lot about EVs as computers on wheels, but they're actually batteries on wheels. Yeah, completely true. And and especially if drivers of the future still want to own their cars, right? We've heard a lot of futurists conceptualize this idea that maybe uh, people will be using shared mobility more and not own cars because, you know, they're sitting around most of the time anyway. But if they if they choose to own a car, then maybe, you know, using it for battery storage uh, for your home would work. Although I will point out that, you know, the more you use a battery, the lower its life cycle, right? So you, you it ages faster. So then you might need a replacement sooner. So you could potentially avoid your warranty. Uh, so I feel like Fermata, you know, really gets a chance to have some good partnerships with the automakers, like what they're doing with Nissan, so that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it becomes a choice. And, and what's the value here? Some people are not going to want to participate in this because they want to keep their battery exclusively for their cars. Or they won't be able to because they're leasing their cars, and maybe there's going to be something in the contract that would prevent them from doing it, like how you can only log like 15 thousand miles or something like that a year. Sure, but there still will be some people who are going to own their cars and they're going to want to make some side money. And it could be worth it because the economics of electricity at times of scarcity are insane. In most, basically grid operators will put a limit on the amount that electricity can be sold for instantaneously because of this. In Texas, that's a very high limit. And during winter storm Uri, Wholesale power prices went up to about $9 a kilowatt hour. Now that's compared to the 13 cents a kilowatt hour that is the average in the United States for retail. Wow. Talk about energy inflation. That's like 70 times higher. Yeah, and that's the, that's the economics that you're working against is these super scarcity pricing when the grid really needs power. But, you know, I mean, for insane prices, you know, as we record this, we're going into the winter of 2022, 2023, and it's insane for Mm. fossil fuel prices already. There's limitations on European imports of natural gas from Russia following the invasion of Ukraine. And the United States is sending a record amount of gas overseas as liquefied natural gas. So, you know, while prices are much higher in Europe, they're still going through the roof compared to what they were in both regions. Mm -hmm. And even without the challenges of fossil fuel shortages in Europe, driving up prices globally, it's not like we're going back to this era of cheap natural gas prices, right? There's a number of factors in society that are, are pushing the trend towards electric adoption, ESG investment trends, maybe a future carbon tax, just a broader drive for energy independence, people wanting to be more resilient, with their homes. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think just like oil prices in the 1970s, I think this is inevitably going to be a catalyst for change. People often forget that the energy transition really had its inception with the oil crises of 1973 and 1979. You know, that's when European, the Danes started deploying wind turbines. President Carter put solar on the White House in the United States. The U.S. Department of Energy was formed people started to really take energy efficiency seriously. And there came out of this this idea that we could grow our economies without a commensurate increase in energy consumption, whether that was oil, gas, or electricity. Yeah, you're so right. And I think, you know, it's easy for people in society at large to see bad things happen in their lives or broadly. And of course, there's horrible things happening that are causing these energy crises. And there's it's it's almost like there's it's a nudge f- for us to move into a new 
positive future. It creates change and it encourages us as a society to improve those areas of our, you know, functionality as a society where we can to overcome the current challenge. And that just sets us up for a better future broadly. Yeah. And these high fossil fuel prices, they're going to be hard for people. You know, they're also going to, this is our opportunity Mm -hmm. to kick fossil fuels for good, Mm -hmm. including in our homes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like that job that you actually kind of hated anyway, and then you got laid off from it and you're like, oh my God, what am I going to do with my life? (laughs) And then after you got over, get over your depression about it, you're like, I actually didn't like that job anyway. And I actually don't want to do that kind of work anymore anyway. I actually really want to go do this other thing. And then five years later, you look back and you're like, wow, I'm so glad. Glad I got laid off. Yeah. Yeah, it is these second and third order effects. Boy, this this episode has everything, doesn't it? Like Christian bait all over it. Yeah, we have technology enabling social change. We have policy lagging technology. Second and third order effects. You know, for me, I, I really enjoy the concepts of decentralization of power structures to give people more independence and choice, which we have here. And also getting the middleman out of the way for progress. It's got everything. Love it. Oh, well, we've waxed philosophical enough, Earthlings, so we'll, we'll let you get back to your lives, and we'll see you again on another turn of this beautiful blue-green space flower we call home. It's the only one we have, so let's take care of it. 